This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. On Election Day in November, in addition to choosing whom they prefer in Washington, D.C. and Beacon Hill, Massachusetts voters will be asked two ballot questions, the first of which is the so-called right to repair law. This right to repair choice has been framed as a necessary technical update to the overwhelmingly popular repair law passed in 2013. Led by organizations of independent secondary auto supply and repair businesses, supporters of Yes on One reassure voters that the ballot question simply modernizes the law to account for telematics, a term for the wireless innovation in car computer technology, akin, they say, to one trading plug-in headphones for wireless ones. Those opposed to the right to repair, a group primarily funded by car manufacturers and their dealership networks, assert that the harmless upgrade comparison elide serious data security risks for car owners. They claim that requiring car manufacturers to provide open telematic systems to everyone introduces substantial privacy and car safety risks to consumers. These alleged dangers are the basis for a well-financed series of media ads set in shadowy parking garages with frightened drivers looking over their shoulders. Joining me to help make sense of what is at stake with ballot question one is Bruce Schneier, an internationally renowned security technologist. He has authored over a dozen books on data security, has testified before US Congress, and has lectured on data security and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Beyond addressing the potential attending risks introduced by the right to repair laws, Professor Schneier will share his views on how consumers can protect themselves in our ever more technologically advanced lives. When I return, I'll be joined by Professor Bruce Schneier. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. I'm now joined by expert security technologist, Professor Bruce Schneier. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Yeah, thanks for having me virtually. <laughs> okay, let's start at the beginning for our listeners. Uh, we're going to talk about this ballot question number one, and we're going to get into the details of what it means. What are the choices as you see them? So this is actually less of a big deal than uh, a lot of people think. Uh, back in 2012, Massachusetts passed a right to repair law. Uh, it was passed by overwhelming margins. It has been the law since then. And basically, it allows people in Massachusetts to fix their own cars or take them to independent mechanics. And that auto manufacturers couldn't do anything to, 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 to not permit that. Since then, there turned out to be a loophole that cars since 2012 increasingly have diagnostic computers that send information out of the car to computers that mechanics have. And that's just computer, uh, cars are becoming more computerized, there's more information in those cars, and that's useful for repair. Because of the way uh, the law worked, the auto manufacturers were able to restrict that data to only mechanics that they authorized, which basically means mechanics that paid them. So the auto manufacturers got this uh, additional revenue stream by keeping that data from car owners, which really subverts the intent of the law. And this, uh, this bill that's going to be voted on this year closes that loophole. 
That's all that's happening. So as you frame it, it, it sounds to me uh, like a clear-cut case of anti-competitive um, technology, meaning uh, they want to somehow limit competition for auto repairs by creating technology that prefers their network to, let's say, independent repair people. Is, is that essentially what you claim? I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's not anything more than that, and it's not really a claim. I mean, that's the, uh, the intent of the, the law, and that's what it's trying to fix. So right now you're living in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, so perhaps you haven't been treated to our uh, network of, uh, of commercials. Those who are opposed to Yes on One are uh, featuring um, pictures of uh, people in dark parking garages uh, and hearing the sound of screeching tires and implying that this, there's some unintended consequences, some risk associated with, let's say, unfettered access to these, what we're calling telematics, the, uh, the communication of the car's systems to, to others. Uh, is there any validity whatsoever? Uh, for instance, uh, could someone uh, use this information in a way uh, that could harm the car owner himself? You know, so I've heard about the commercials. I have not seen them. They sound absolutely crazy. And I think when you say those opposed, it's the auto manufacturers, right? I don't think it's anybody else who is actually opposed to this. And it is a, a scare story. Uh, it's the opposite of true. It's freaking crazy. And it sounds like it's going to scare people to vote against what seems like a really reasonable idea. Now, you are an expert in uh, security and in technology. Can you imagine a situation whereby some of this information might be used? I mean, let's play devil's advocate. Let's say uh, I were uh, someone who wanted to, um, I don't know, uh, break a car remotely so as to require that car to have some unnecessary repair. Is there a way? Can you imagine a way? And again, this is your, this is your wheelhouse. Is there a way for this information to be misused? So the answer, of course, is yes, but that's a really crappy question, right? Can you imagine? I mean, I'm seeing you on video. You, there's a window behind you. Can you imagine a sniper shooting you in the back? Can you imagine a fire? Can you imagine the building collapsing? What are you doing in that building? Is that, isn't that crazy of you? I mean, our imagination of the worst thing that could happen, I mean, I can imagine zombie invasions, is not a really good guide to policy. And there are a lot of risks to cars and computers, and I hope we can talk about them. They kind of have nothing to do with the right to repair bill. But yes, the increasing computerization and networking of cars is a big security risk. But, uh, but separate that from, from this bill. This bill doesn't do anything to change that risk, make it better or worse. All it does is changes uh, industry profits. So let's move into that space and let's talk about this. Now, you said this is a, what you consider to be a necessary upgrade or an update to a law that was very popular and widely approved in 2012, 2013. Um, what's changed in car technology? Is it simply we've traded, for lack of a better uh, analog, uh, plug-in headphones for wireless headphones? Or is there something else? Is, are cars doing things uh, be, becoming more aware of their drivers and becoming more aware of their driver's activities? I mean, the way to think of it since uh, 2012 is that cars have become computers with four wheels and an engine. Mm -hmm. Or really, they've become 100-plus computer distributed systems with four wheels and an engine. And they are on the internet. 
And like every computer we have, there are vulnerabilities, there are hacks, there are dangers. Uh, if you go uh, onto uh, YouTube, you can see a video of a couple of security engineers back in, I think, 2014, uh, taking over a, uh, I think it was a Chrysler. There's a reporter in the car. This is all being done with permission. And he's driving. And then as he's driving, the wipers come on. The radio comes on. Uh, the, the sprayer starts spraying uh, water on the, uh, the windshield so he has trouble seeing. And then uh, his steering wheel is disabled. And he can't slow down. So, and this all happened remotely. This is a hack. Uh, in 2015... Chrysler, because of this, and I think this or something else, recalled 1.4 million cars to fix a software bug. And there have been all sorts of these vulnerabilities discovered, some through remote access, some requiring you to plug into the car, uh, some that uh, hacked it through uh, software in in a DVD that was put into the DVD port. So yeah, these are computers and they are just as vulnerable and there are huge vulnerabilities. And oddly, this right to repair law is one of the ways to, uh, to help fix this. And I do want to get to that. But yes, I'm not underestimating how dangerous the Internet of Things is and its cars and medical devices and appliances and thermostats and smart city things. All of those things are vulnerable because... You know, computers tend to be insecure. And that's a real risk. So if this is indeed, uh, for lack of a better analogy, spy versus spy, each side, the hacker and the the car developer trying to stay ahead of each other. How do we know then when we uh, provide, let's say, an open system, the communication of the car's systems to, let's say, beyond the car, the four walls of the car, how can we be sure that that's not introducing something we haven't anticipated yet? It almost certainly is, but that's how you fix it. So it's spy versus spy almost. It's attacker versus defender. Right? The attacker tries to find vulnerabilities. The defender fixes them, but actually defender often doesn't. What we know about the history of computers and even cars and medical devices is that the manufacturers will not fix vulnerabilities unless they really, really have to. Uh, they will lie about their effectiveness. They will try to attack researchers. They will try to use laws like this to inhibit researchers. They will deny that attacks are real because fixing them is expensive. I mean, you don't know what wants a 1.4 million car recall. That costs a lot of money. So by hiding the interfaces, by laws like this, and it's not just this law, this happens in other industries, manufacturers make it so we, the public, don't know about vulnerabilities. Right? The vulnerabilities are there. The attackers will find them. But if we, the public, don't know, they don't get fixed. What we know about this, this industry in general is that the only way to improve security is, A, through research by academics, because the manufacturers aren't going to do it and public disclosure that forces the manufacturers to fix them. And that's why open interfaces are actually better for security because they lead to improvements. So if I unpack what you've said, uh, were we to, let's say, not have the right to repair, that is keep the proprietary information of the car within the hands of the dealership and the manufacturer himself, 
uh, we have less ability to understand what's wrong with it. So by opening up what appears to be counterintuitive, by opening up the interfaces, we also open up the scrutiny to those flaws and thereby accelerate the rate at which those flaws are, are fixed. I mean, that's right. So, so if the audio industry is allowed to restrict access to its uh, telemetry, access to its interfaces, it doesn't just allow them to monopolize service, right? That's the point. But it allows them to monopolize scrutiny over the products, and it really ensures that the defects are discovered by the bad guys first. They're only known to us after they've been exploited, after there's been death or ransomware against your car. And that's too dangerous, right? You don't want to give the industry control over bad news about its products. If that's a recipe for an industry never fixing its products. Now, you mentioned that uh, this sort of public scrutiny is, is vital to the, to the entire process. Which agencies or organizations or academic institutions are tasked with ensuring cars are, let's say, uh, beyond the, the, the realm of hackers? You know, there really isn't anybody, right? Department of Transportation, National Transportation Safety Board, they set standards for car safety. There aren't really standards for automobile computer security in that same way. I mean, this seems freaking crazy when I say it, but it's so new. And the auto manufacturers really have pushed for there not to be government regulation. So it is really up to the researchers, be they academic or non-academic. And there are many universities that uh, study hacking of Internet of Things, including cars. And again, you go on Google, you can find videos, you can find articles of research done. Research that's led to security improvements that have been adopted by the industry. This is our process. It seems kind of weird, but we don't have a... You have to ask permission before you can do it in the same way you have in aircraft safety. And even there, you, you see the 737 MAX, regulatory agencies are captured by industry and routinely improve very unsafe, very insecure uh, improvements. So it really is the open community that is doing the heavy work here. So I want to use that as a segue to talk about, uh, you characterize a car as, a, I believe, something like a supercomputer on four wheels with a steering wheel, right? Um, uh, if that's so, and again, now we're talking about the internet of things, where are the risks in a car? Do I, um, do I have to worry that there's you know, the cameras, microphones, GPS? Uh, is there any real concern right now? You, you I assume, drive a car. What, is there precautions you take when you get in your car to ensure it's, the information is not being collected or misused? So, of course not. And remember, it's not the information we're more con- most concerned about. I mean, sure, I'm concerned if someone turns on my Bluetooth microphone remotely, even just on my conversations, I'm much more concerned if they disable the brakes. So there are privacy concerns, but I think there are privacy concerns even without the car. I mean, the fact that I have a phone in my pocket, which knows my location, which has a camera, which has a microphone, which... Uh, sees my email, my tasks, and my, and my web searches, is a huge privacy risk. And, and cars add a very small difference there. We're really concerned about safety. We're really concerned that as the Internet of Things, right, the car being a computer with four wheels and an engine, it's a four wheels and an engine part. 
that uh, it can uh, functions could be disabled. It can be taken over. And while as an as a researcher and someone in this space, I worry about it. I understand there's nothing I can do about it. And the thing about computers these days is they're largely out of our control. And are you concerned about your email being eavesdropped on? You might be, but what can you do about it? Nothing. You're using Google's mail. I think you have actually no power. Google has all the power. I have a refrigerator. Right? I, mine is not on the internet because I bought it a few years ago. If I bought it this year, it would be. That would concern me. Yes. What can I do about it? Nothing. Because it probably can't function if I turn the internet off. So we're moving into this world where these things are out of our control. There aren't personal things we can do to improve safety and security. We have to agitate really for better laws. So we want here our national safety laws that force manufacturers to spend a lot more time thinking about the security and safety of their car computer networks, and then the ability for researchers to look at what they've done and check if they've done a good job. I mean, those are the two things that we as society today need. And they're not things we could individually do, except possibly like by voting this proposition in Massachusetts, agitating for better standards nationally. So our, our work is very much political, not technical. So I don't want to uh, uh, mischaracterize what you said. You said, uh, I believe, uh, yes on one is a no-brainer. In other words, it's talking about information about your car um, and um, you actually are safer if you have the right to repair rather than uh, more at risk. But as policymakers, somebody has to consider the implications of these subsequent uh, improvements in technology. Somebody should be making sure car technology remains safe. That's a good summary. Okay, good. All right, so um, we're all drivers. I, I assume all our uh, Hubwonk listeners are drivers. Uh, maybe that's unfair, but we certainly all are surrounded by technology. Uh, I have uh, friends who cover the, the camera on their computer and uh, put their phones in the freezer. Um, so I'm going to give you an open-ended question and say, which, which of all the, the risks in our life and our Internet of Things do you see as, as um, real and which are uh, the stuff of uh, tinfoil hats? I mean, most are real. The risks is that there are computers that affect the world in a direct physical manner. Right? So there's a fundamental difference between, I don't know, your spreadsheet crashes and you lose your data and your embedded heart monitor crashes and you lose your life. Even though it's the exact same CPU and operating system and application software and application data and vulnerability and attack tool and attack. It's what the computer is attached to and what it can do. That's, that's the risk. And a lot of these things, I mean, cars and medical devices are not this, but when you get to toys and small appliances and little doodads in your office, they're designed very much at a low profit margin, awfully, often offshore by teams that are ad hoc, come together, design them and disperse. We get a steady stream of security updates for our cars, for our phones and our computers, because there are teams at Apple and Google and Microsoft who, who write those patches. There's nobody to patch your refrigerator. There's nobody to patch your home router or that toy you bought last Christmas or that drone you have. And that's a real, a real vulnerability and that's a real risk. 
And again, it is the lack of good regulation on security that allows lousy things to be sold in the first place. At some level, though, isn't the uh, government always a few steps behind, meaning it couldn't possibly legislate fast enough to to compete with technology? Wouldn't you rather rely on sort of the uh, uh, crowdsourcing of information? In other words, if we have a device, a refrigerator that uh, uh, is hackable, uh, wouldn't consumer reports or, uh, you know, a Reddit uh, blog capture that, you know, the, the GE model XYZ is, is a bad Apple, uh, stay away from it, uh, as opposed to expecting a legislator in Washington to understand every model and every permutation of every technology? So do we now? I mean, does the legislator in Washington understand every car on the road so they can pass a seatbelt law? I, I don't think that's true for any, anything of society. I mean, do, do all our legislators understand pharmacology? Do they understand food science? You know, how can we have health laws? How does that work? I mean, we have a lot of experience legislating highly technological things. We do it all the time in many areas of society. I mean, you can walk into a pharmacy, uh, buy something, and you're pretty sure it's not going to outright kill you. Even though nobody who voted on whatever laws made sure of that understood the, the, you know, the medical science behind how it might kill you. So no, you, of course, you don't expect legislators to understand every make and model of car. But you, you can regulate them. And it's certainly true that there's a lot more money in moving fast and staying unregulated. Right. There's probably not a lot of uh, TV commercials we're seeing uh, supporting the right to repair. Just those scary, weird ones implying that uh, if you can repair your car, then you know women will get attacked in, in dark parking lots. But we as society have to figure out how to effectively govern in a technological era. If what you're saying is true and is effectively ungovernable, you can't possibly govern Facebook. You can't possibly govern Apple or Amazon. Then we've really lost government and we're living in a world where corporations are in charge. Now, maybe we are living in that world, but I I don't think we should give up so quickly on the mechanisms of government. Government is how we do things that are not in the short-term best interests of a bunch of billionaires. And sometimes we want to do things that aren't in the short-term best interest of a bunch of billionaires. Oh. I'm not sure I agree necessarily, but I appreciate uh, you're, uh, you're a professor at the Kennedy School. You're, you know, it's a Kennedy School of Government, so we look for, uh, as a graduate of that fine institution, we do look for uh, ways to better organize ourselves and, and uh, govern. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you did say earlier in the segment that we know that regulators couldn't be captured by the industry they're supposed to regulate. You cited uh, the airline industry uh, that was theoretically tasked with the sole purpose of keeping us safe. Uh, and yet Boeing was able to uh, circumvent or at least write laws that regulators missed. Um, what about that problem? I mean, it exists and we need to solve it. The solution isn't to be to eliminate the regulators. I mean, the Boeing 7437 MAX problem was a big problem, but you know, not a lot of people died. If, if the solution of regulatory capture is to have no regulation, it'll be much, much worse. So we need to solve that problem. And the devil's in the details here. There are a lot of details. But don't give up on the mechanisms of government because they're not perfect. 
right? The mechanisms of, of, of greed and the market are only useful for solving certain classes of problems. They will never solve collective action problems. They will never solve safety and security problems. Right? There isn't an industry in the past 150 years that has improved safety and security without being forced to by government. Right? Cars, planes, medical devices, food, restaurants, uh, appliances, workplace, consumer goods, most recently financial products. Right? It is in the best interest of the market for things to be as secure, as insecure as possible and hope you don't notice. I mean, that's in a sense the point of defeating this right to repair law, to make sure that consumers don't notice how bad things are. Because if they can repair their stuff, if they can look at the data, if they can find vulnerabilities, then manufacturers have to fix them. But if they can't find them, manufacturers don't have to fix them. So, I mean, I'm a a big fan of markets. They just do what markets do. They don't do what markets don't. You know, no market's going to keep Facebook from dropping democracy. It's going to have to be something else. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not sure I agree, but even in your uh, situation where you talked about Chrysler being hacked, again, bring it back to question one, where someone was able to capture the driving essence of the car. It was a scientist and a reporter, both private sector, reporting to uh, on a, a flaw in Chrysler. It was Chrysler, the incumbent on Chrysler then with that exposed flaw. Again, um, private enterprise uh, pointed out a vulnerability and ultimately was fixed by the manufacturer. Really, the, the government intervention was after the uh, information that was gleaned by private enterprise. Yeah, I mean, sure. That's an example of that. But still, I mean, remember when you used to eat in restaurants? Mm-hmm. How often did you go and check the kitchen? How often was private enterprise involved in making sure that uh, the food you ate was healthy? I mean, did you check any private websites before you went out? Of course not, right? Government regulation kept those kitchens clean. I mean, I don't know. I just don't want to turn this into a conversation about, about <laughs> the, the mechanisms of government because people who think government doesn't do any good, they're just plain crazy. I mean, they don't want to – you don't want to live in a world – where restaurants poison people and it's incumbent on consumers to say, hey, that restaurant is poisoning people. Let's type a consumer reports article so people don't eat there. But that's not a fun world to live in. Indeed, but I, I have to say that kitchen is, unless the government is going to be there every day watching every meal be prepared, there's limits to what government can do. And I right. say- And the limits are good enough because you haven't been poisoned in restaurants your entire life. I agree. This whole notion of government can't do it perfect, therefore they shouldn't do it at all. It's just a dumb libertarian argument. Don't make it. There are better libertarian arguments. Mm-hmm. Well, I might argue as, uh, again, I'm not going to identify as a libertarian necessarily, but I'll say uh, there are incentives for the kitchen not to poison people, which is, uh, particularly in this information age, uh, even one allegation of, of poison is enough to uh, bring a, a restaurant to its knees. So Turns it out it's not, to- actually. Turns out it's not. And in fact, in this information age, especially with tech things, there's incentive to, to keep costs as low and poison just enough people because it's cheaper to stay in business. It's not the same. No, that's not the way society works. I want to talk about you. You came out with a book two years ago, 2018. Uh, I, I thought the... Uh 
the title is particularly thought provoking. I thought perhaps you could uh, share with us the themes of that book in our, as our closing remarks. Uh, it's entitled Click Here to Kill Everyone. Um, what were the main themes? And uh, now two years later, what have you learned? What, what do you think you got right in that book? And uh, uh, what might you have missed or like to revise? So the book is really talking about what we're talking about here. It's really talking about the Internet of Things and the problems of computers that affect the world in a direct physical manner where vulnerabilities in software become matters of public safety and ways that we as society can fix them. And fast forward to the end, actually don't say free enterprise, killing people as much as they want, and then we complain and they stop magically. It turns out that's not the answer I give. But it does talk about this world that, that we are wrestling with here, where computers are increasingly powerful, autonomous, and physically capable. And that how that fundamentally changes the risk profile over your computers and phones. And you know, since then, if anything, you know, the problem has gotten worse. That computers really are everything. That my refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold. And my microwave oven is a computer that makes things hot. And an ATM machine is a computer with money inside. And these are all computers, and they have the same types of vulnerabilities that our traditional computers have. And we need to think about them. And what's missing in the whole ecosystem of making them secure, because they're not secure now, they're not being made secure now, is government. I mean, government is the entity that we use to act collectively as society as opposed to individually as consumers. And, and we need that right now because the market's not going to fix these problems. Well, it's, uh, I, I appreciate the, that thesis. Uh, and I've, I'm sure we could have a lively debate on uh, the merits of the book, but I, I, I re- very much recommend your blog. How can our listeners, uh, if, if they've liked what you've said today, um, how can they reach you or uh, hear from you? Or if they didn't like what I said today, how can they reach me? I suppose is the other <laughs> thing. Uh, I'm easy to find. You type Schneier into Google. It comes on my website, S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R. My, my email address is public. All my books, my essays, my articles, all my work is, is reachable from that website. So schneier.com, easy to find. And that's how you find me. Wonderful. And, and finally, you, you are a lecturer at the Kennedy School. Uh, are, how are classes going for the fall semester? Uh, have you found it uh, better, much worse, or uh, uh, have you enjoyed being a virtual professor? So we started Zooming after spring break uh, in spring, and it was a, it was a hard transition. Uh, I think I did pretty well. The students liked it. I'm actually not teaching for another week. I start mid-semester. And what's different is going to be that the class didn't start face-to-face. It's going to start on Zoom. And other professors are reporting that that's difficult to ferment that sense of, of community inside the classroom when it's, when it's entirely remote. Uh, I think I do this pretty well. So I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll see. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure your, your students will appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being with us, Bruce. You've been a wonderful guest. Uh, I hope I haven't pushed back a little bit too hard. Uh, I like to have... Uh, uh, at least a little bit of uh, uh, disagreement uh, in, in the podcast. So thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways you can support us. You can give us a five-star rating, 
you can offer a review, and you can share it with friends. If you have comments or suggestions or ideas about future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>